This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And of course, my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Today we have a fantastic opportunity to interview two Australian diplomats who are each serving as a head of mission. Rod Brazier, Australia's High Commissioner to the Solomon Islands, and Sarah Moriarty, Australia's High Commissioner to Samoa. Alan is with them in studio at the ANU's Crawford School and will MC the conversation, and I will be calling in. However, before we begin, I do want to observe that we are recording on Wednesday the 11th of September, but won't post the episode until early October. So please note, listeners, just in case facts on the ground change in the ensuing few weeks. With that... Over to you, Alan. Thanks, Darren. The theme of our podcast, of course, is how Australia engages with the world. And you and I talk a lot about foreign policy, and we've interviewed a number of senior policy advisors. But we haven't really talked so much about the role of the overseas network of Australian posts, which provides the essential diplomatic transmission belt between Canberra and the world articulating and advocating for Australian views and interests on the one hand and interpreting and analysing the overseas country and its leadership for Canberra on the other. So we're really pleased to have this opportunity, because they're both back in Canberra at the moment, to interview two of Australia's serving heads of mission from posts in the Pacific. Both of them are High Commissioners, which just to remind you is the name we give ambassadors in countries which are also members of the Commonwealth which means most of the South Pacific states. So it's great to welcome our High Commissioner in Honiara in Solomon Islands, Rod Brazier, and our High Commissioner in Apia, Samoa, Sarah Moriarty. Rod is an old friend. He and I were colleagues in the Office of National Assessments uh, several years ago, and he has a long background in Southeast Asia, including working for uh, the Asia Foundation in Cambodia, Malaysia, and Indonesia, but he's also worked in AusAid, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and as Head of East Asia Division in DFAT. Great to see you again and to have you here with us, Rod. Thank you very much, Alan. Nice to see you. Our second guest is Sarah Moriarty, who's a career officer in DFAT with a really broad range of experience on South Asia, the Caribbean, Pacific governance, management of the department. Like Rod, she also has Southeast Asia experience, including two postings, in the Australian Embassy in Jakarta. Hi, Sarah. Thanks, Alan. Lovely to see you. Now, Darren and I want to talk to you about some of the big issues facing Australia in the South Pacific and also about the daily work of a diplomat. But I'll begin with a very general question. Sarah, could you first, and then Rod, give us a sense of the places you're accredited to? So tell us first, for you know people who are listening who might not know about it, about Samoa and Apia. 
Thanks, Alan. Yes, well, unfortunately, far too many Australians don't know enough about Samoa, I'd have to say. Uh, it's a beautiful country. It's about halfway between Sydney and Honolulu. It's a small country. Its uh, population is about 196,000 people. We have about 75,000 Australians, actually, who claim Samoan heritage. That's the last census. So there's actually a large diaspora in Australia, mostly in Queensland, but also in uh, Victoria and New South Wales. Samoa's got a really interesting history because it's a very proud, independent Pacific Island country. It was the first Pacific Island country to declare independence in 1962. But before that, it had quite an interesting colonial past, and it was the seat of colonial interest, let's put it that way, for, for many years, and the British and the Americans and the Germans were, were there. It was a German colony for, for many years until the end of the First World War, and then it was actually, by the UN, it was passed over to New Zealand to have a, as a mandated territory. So from the about sort of the mid 1920s i think until about until 1962 independence it was actually a new zealand uh, mandated territory it is a, an interesting culture it sees itself very much as the leader of polynesia it has a very strong chiefly matai system and you see that in everyday practice it's, it's not a country that has hidden its culture it lives its culture very very strongly in its, its music and its arts, but also in its governance system as well. So it has a very much part of its political system is the chiefly system. So in order to be elected as a member of parliament, you have to have a, a Matai title. In the past, actually... Even to be elected as a member of parliament. Even to be elected as a member of parliament. In the past, actually, only Matai chiefs could vote, but they extended universal suffrage. So you have to be a Matai to, to be a member of parliament. But there are many women who are Matai who hold Matai titles. I think only about 10% of the to total of chiefly titles are held by women. But there are some very strong and significant female leaders, including the Deputy Prime Minister, who comes from one of the paramount chiefly families. And she's a fantastic advocate for Samoa on the world stage. So does this mean that you know only 1% of Samoans can be elected to Parliament? Or does it mean that 40%? How, how many people would be able to be elected? I think the, I can't remember the exact number of people in Samoa who hold a chiefly title, but I, I think it's about 25%. Okay, so yeah, it's quite so a large, it's quite a large group. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They've actually split titles. Titles used to be held in one area and they've actually split titles now, unlike in American Samoa, which hasn't changed their sort of chiefly system. So yes, it's quite diversified now. Great, thanks. Now, Rod, could you tell us about Solomon Islands and Honiara? Sure, Alan. Solomon Islands sits between uh, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. It's an archipelago. Around 650,000 people live there on six main islands and 900 or more other small ones. The main islands are Choisul, Isabel, Malata, Guadalcanal, New Georgia and Makira. I name them because it gives you a, a hint about the unusual history uh, several of them have Spanish names because uh, the Spanish explorers, oh, it's going back 450, 500 years ago, named them after their hometowns in, in Iberia. One of the big differences between Solomon Islands and Samoa is that Solomon Islands consists of quite distinct cultures on each of, the, of these main islands, different languages, different traditions, some patrilineal, some matrilineal. And 
this has, has found expression in some of the difficulties Solomon Islands has had in forging a national vision and with some of the difficulties related to stability. And as many listeners would know, Solomon Islands was the object of one of Australia's most ambitious foreign policy interventions, and that was to lead the regional assistant mission in Solomon Islands starting in uh, 2003 to restore uh, peace and stability to that country after five years of civil war. And that cost about $3 billion, so Mm. it was a really substantial intervention. Mm. What are the lessons that we've learnt from that intervention, and what are the lessons that Solomon Islands has also learnt from the intervention? I'm not sure who it was, Alan, you might know this, but whoever had the insight to forge the consensus across the Pacific Island Forum and involve the other Pacific Island nations was very far-sighted. That way it was not painted as an intervention by Australia without the permission of the region. Even though Australia provided you know, 95% of resources, it had a, an international or regional uh, character. It also had the imprimatur of the Security Council. So that was a big and positive lesson for Australia. I think the other big lesson for Australia, which we've learnt but are still perhaps struggling to adapt to, is that moving from capacity replacement to advice support uh, through to development is very difficult and takes uh, many, many years and we're not there yet. Okay, thanks. I recently came across, and this is sort of relevant to what you were just saying, a statement by the Australian Prime Minister about the South Pacific. The PM said, we are committed by inexorable circumstances to the doctrine hands off the Pacific. It was Billy Hughes in 1919 rather than uh, Scott Morrison in 2019, and it was Japan rather than China that he had in mind. But the point is that Australia has been focused on the region for a very long time. It sometimes seemed to me that Australian engagement with the South Pacific goes through quite regular cycles. Sometimes we've wanted to roll up our sleeves and get heavily engaged in the region helping directly to fix problems and sort things out. And at other times, we thought it preferable to stand back and let the regional governments take the running and work out for themselves what they want. Now, of course, there's no proper answer to this question of where and how we engage. It's always going to be a, a matter of balance. But, but with the Morrison government's Pacific step up, we're going through one of those periodic activist phases Starting with you, Rod, what are you doing that's new as a result of this? I would start by saying, Alan, that I agree broadly with the premise uh, of, of the question, but what's impressed me since I've been in Solomon Islands is some of these deep roots that we have, uh, particularly some parts of government. Defence in particular has long association with their counterparts a lot of cooperation over many decades. And the aid program, of course, for a long time has been very big in the Pacific and quarantined from uh, some of the reductions uh, that we've seen over recent years. But I, I think you're right. I think what the government is aiming to do now is to bring all aspects of national power to bear on uh, what we see as increased strategic competition in this region. 
one feature that is unmistakable is the commitment of ministers, and that's finding expression in very much a hastened tempo of visits from senior ministers. Just to give you a sense, in Honiara, so far this year, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister have visited uh, yeah, Honiara. Yeah, yeah, big. And what about in Samoa, Sarah? Yeah, I think just to build on what Rod was saying, I, th- I think in Samoa we've had a development-focused relationship for a very long time, and we haven't been absent from there either. I mean, we've been engaged there for for a long time too. I think the renewed focus, though, is about building and extending the linkages that we have had, and in some ways the government kind of backing the broadening of those relationships. So we're looking at sport as a, for example, we know that Pacific Islanders are fantastic sports people. I was just at the rugby match on the weekend with uh, Prime Minister Tulepa and Prime Minister Morrison. And, you know, we have seven Samoans part of the Wallabies team that Mm -hmm. will be going to the World Cup. But it's about building on those relationships, kind of extending them, drawing them, facilitating and making some of those people-to-people connections even stronger than they already are. We're doing it also through the church partnerships program. There's lots of different ways in which we're kind of trying to, I guess, extend and kind of capitalise on the already extensive relationships, including through the Seasonal Workers Program, but now adding on the Pacific Labor Scheme, which is a really a great thing for both Samoa and for Australia. Sorry, could you explain what that is? So the Pacific Labor Scheme is quite different to the Seasonal Workers mm. Program. So the uh, Seasonal Workers Program is uh, six or actually nine months now for unskilled labourers to come to Australia. It's mostly focused in the horticulture and agriculture sector. The Pacific Labour Scheme is quite different. It's low-skilled and semi-skilled work. It's up to three years and in a much broader range of areas. People can work in hospitality, potentially in aged care. There's people in the sort of meat working, meat processing industry. And actually I'm about to go and, and visit some Samoans who are in Queensland working in the meat processing uh, sector. But I mean, the fantastic thing about the Pacific Labor Scheme, particularly, I think, is that it broadens out the range of skills that Samoans or and Pacific Islanders can get from working in Australia and take those skills back home. And it's not just about picking apples, which is, you know, they don't grow apples, apples. in Samoa. Yeah. So it's about building up a skills base mm. that people can then take back home. But they're also getting paid Australian wages, getting Australian qualifications that they can then send back money to their home. And for a country that relies you know, 24% of its GDP is comes from remittances. That's a really, wow. really important thing for Samoa. But it's a good thing for Australia too because, as we know, rural Australia is suffering from labour shortages and we just really want to grow this program so that we can fill that gap for, for rural Australia as well. Yeah, thanks. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. And I have another question about the labour programs, but I'll, I'll save that for a little while later. I first wanted to get inside the strategic minds um, of those two countries and how they see the world. Because when we study the history of Australian foreign policy and indeed the challenges that we face today, maybe the central concept is how we navigate relationships with great powers, whether it's friendly great powers like the UK and now the US and great powers with whom we have a more complex relationship like China. So I was wondering if there are any parallels we can draw in the strategic thinking in the countries to which you are accredited? Do they grapple with similar questions? Could we say, for example, that 
Australia is to the Solomon Islands or Samoa what the United States is to Australia? Rod, if I could start with you. Thanks, Darren. Good, good question. It's important for us as diplomats, of course, to try to put ourselves in the shoes of decision makers in our countries of accreditation to understand how they see the world and how they will make decisions. When Solomon Islands became independent in 1978, there were, by some estimates, as few as three people with university degrees in in the whole country. That number has increased, but there is still not anything approximating what you'd call a, a strategic thinking community, which thinks about foreign policy issues in the way that we do here. The other element is that the Southwest Pacific has been a fairly quiet and uncontested part of the world for many decades. And Solomon Islands, I think, has been content to focus its efforts inward, to project its influence through regional groupings such as Pacific Islands Forum, our Melanesian Spearhead Group, sometimes uh, raise its voice on particular issues of concern over the years that has included uh, the Papuan provinces of, of Indonesia. But beyond that, they've largely been content to exist in a fairly tranquil corner of the world whose security has been uh, underpinned by what we might call the rules-based order, you know, guaranteed by the US and Australia. In as much as they think about things more broadly than that, I think they do see Australia as a responsible and active member of the regional community. They look to us to provide their security. They look to us to provide a very large injection of development assistance to support them. But I don't think it's accurate to think of their relationship with us as being akin to ours with the United States. Sarah, Darren's asked the question, but let me add a sort of wrinkle to it. You were talking about New Zealand's long relationship with Samoa. So is it Australia or New Zealand that's the United States in the Samoa worldview? I was going to bring that up, yeah, because I think Samoa's got quite a different worldview to the Solomon Islands, and maybe it's because it's been independent for a bit longer and because it had those very close connections to New Zealand for all of that period of time. So I think, for example, a lot of the school teachers in Samoa were, were New Zealanders for many, many years. There were also some Australians there, but mostly New Zealanders. We sort of think about the 75,000 Australians with Samoan heritage, but actually there's over 180,000 Samoans living in New Zealand, and there's also about the same number, if not more, living in the United States. So Samoans have always been a lot more outwardly focused. They were called the Navigator Islands when they were first sort of sighted by Roggeveen, the Dutch explorer who didn't set foot on Samoan soil, but he saw the islands and 
sort of navigated them and called them the navigators because they were seafarers who used to go to sea in these massive canoes that sort of fit sort of 50 people in them and they were famed for kind of navigating by the stars. So they've always had that kind of outward sort of sense and they were able to take advantage of and I think this has been something that's been fantastic as an outcome from those close relationships with with New Zealand. The sort of elite and a lot of the leaders in Samoa were educated in New Zealand, some of them more and more in Australia now. But the Prime Minister, for example, did the last year of his high school or the last six months of his high school in New Zealand and then went to university in New Zealand. And so they were able to educate a whole range of people who now Mm -hmm. occupy those positions. So to come back to the question, I guess they do have a sense of themselves on the global stage and because they've had a lot of stability unlike you know there's only two major islands in Samoa and then a couple of sort of four other smaller ones they do have stability and the Prime Minister's been Prime Minister for nearly 21 years and they see themselves as having a, a regional leadership role they do have a foreign policy it's a small foreign policy grouping of you know people within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade who've worked on the region, worked in the Pacific Islands Forum, worked at the Commonwealth Secretariat. They've got a vision mm-hmm. and I think they've got a pretty good sense of where they see their place in the world. I don't think Australia is the United States. I was just thinking, is it that New Zealand was the UK and now we're the United States, you know, <laughs> um, in that kind of transit? But I don't, I don't think it's quite that simple. So I think it's somewhere between the two, maybe. I don't know. We're sort of, there's no alliance. We don't have an alliance with Samoa, but New Zealand does have a treaty of friendship and it's Samoa is the only country in the Pacific that New Zealand has a treaty of friendship with. So perhaps it's New Zealand that's the, the US, yeah. Can I just add on, it's an interesting distinction between Samoa and Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands has very small diaspora communities uh, overseas. The biggest would be in Brisbane, I think, and it, it would amount to maybe a couple of thousand people. So much, much, much smaller. Interesting. Well, if I can now turn to the Australian mindset, and I would refer you to a speech at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji that Prime Minister Morrison made back in January, which focused on this theme of family uh, or vivale uh, in the bilateral relationship. And I quote him, Australia has many relationships all around the world, and they come by many different names. Some of them are spoken in that special language of diplomacy, which diplomats understand and the rest of us would shake our heads at, I suppose. But to talk about Vivale is to go beyond diplomacy. It's to talk about something deep and something rich, something that is very local, something that is very home, and something which connects peoples more than any other words or documents can. I hate to break it to the PM, Darren, but he hasn't actually gone beyond diplomacy at all. What he's doing here by identifying connections, is diplomacy in its most classic form. (laughs) Well, be that as it may, Alan, I was wondering, uh, and perhaps, Sarah, if I could start with you, what the concept means for your roles. You are diplomats who who speak that special language of diplomacy, but we do have a a different relationship um, with partners in the South Pacific. So does this family concept translate into day-to-day diplomacy or is it more of a a framing device or mindset for continuing to build a positive and cooperative relationship? Mm, Yeah and I think that's a good question and I asked myself that when this concept came out and we don't use the word vuvale in Samoa because that's not the right word it's ainga in Samoan. Ainga is the word for family but the concept of family is I think the same in Fiji. Don't know enough about Solomon Islands culture, but it's a very strong concept in Samoa. So 
in the Samoan context, family is really important and everybody, everybody in the family has a place. So it's a very hierarchical structure. People have different roles depending on whether you're an untitled male or a titled male or if you're marrying into a family and you live in the same village as your husband or if you stay in your own village, you have a, you have a particular word that describes you and so does your husband if he was to come and live in your village. So it's quite structured. I did ask my staff, actually. I was quite interested, you know, is it, are we overplaying this family? But they said, no, it's good. We do think of Australia as family. I think because of the diaspora and so many of them have family in Australia, it actually resonates really well. So we've been using the word ainga, but I think we do need to be a bit careful. New Zealanders have a much bigger Pacific Island community in New Zealand, and they use the term as well. I think it's true that we are part of the same family, but I think we need to be a bit careful about what our relationship is. And I know Jenny Hayward-Jones asked that question about if we are family, who are we? Um, which part of the family? I think we still need to work out what our role is in the family. I think sometimes we're seen as a bit of a benevolent uncle. Perhaps we're not the brother. Um, we're not the big brother. Sometimes we can behave like that. I'm still thinking that through in terms of how what our family relationship is with Samoa. But it does resonate. We are family and they, they see us very much in that role. I think it's, a, a, again, a bit different in Solomon Islands as you'd expect. When I go into Solomon Islands communities, I'm always struck by how cohesive and natural and lively and organic they are. And I think when, when Solomon Islanders think of family or, or Wontok, you would think of quite a large group uh, of, of people uh, and you would think of it as more than one uh, household. You'd probably think of it as a, as a, a larger community of 20 or 30 uh, households. And they are mutually supportive. One thing you notice in Solomon Islands, despite it being a quite a poor country, GDP per capita around $2,000 a year, which is very low by world standards, but there are no beggars on the street, there are no orphanages, and that's because of this very high-functioning community uh, that they have. So when we talk about being part of that community, I think it means uh, responsibility, loyalty, reliability, uh, but also some modesty about our role, the way we talk about the work that Australia does with Solomon Islands and moving away from a donor-recipient view of the relationship. Could I just add one more point on that? And just picking up something you said, Rod, I think that's um, absolutely the case too. And I should have mentioned, I guess, in Samoan context, family brings obligations too. And a lot of time that is financial because Samoa's a bit wealthier than Solomon Islands, but every time there's a, a family, you know, a wedding, a funeral, something happens, they, they put out the call and the family has to contribute. It's usually financially. And if we want to be part of that, then we need to recognise, and, and, and we are a very generous um, contributor to Samoa's um, economy, but yeah, it does come with obligations. We talked a bit before about China's growing engagement in the uh, in the region as one of the motivating forces for the uh, step up, uh, and it's certainly hard to see developments like Australia's Coral Sea Cable communications link with Solomon Islands, or the broader Australian engagement initiatives like Pacific Security College, which will uh, be established here at the ANU, as disconnected from uh, from China's engagement. 
Uh, beginning with you, Sarah, Samoa's had a long relationship with the PRC dating back to 1976. Indeed, I understand China has had a longer diplomatic presence in uh, Apia than, uh, than Australia. Could you just tell us something about the nature of the China-Samoa uh, relationship? Hmm. Well, I think the first thing to mention is that Samoa likes to have choices. Um, its infrastructure needs are great. It's benefited over the last, particularly, I guess, the last 15 or 20 years uh, of China um, providing infrastructure that Australia hasn't been able to provide. We we have done some infrastructure in Samoa, but uh, I guess the Chinese model is to do things very quickly. Uh, it brings in um, Chinese labourers, gets things done really rapidly. It's mostly been around kind of meeting the request of um, leaders in Samoa to build uh, government buildings. There's been more recent, I suppose, in the last sort of 10 years or so, there's been a, quite a large number of loans. The new brand new airport that just formally opened last year was built with a with a loan to China. But there also have been some other grant funding through sort of sister city relationships with um, southern Chinese um, provinces. Of course, Samoa was incredibly grateful because the Pacific Games that Samoa hosted at very short notice um, after Tonga pulled out, they really could not have delivered those games without the very generous assistance from China in refurbishing stadiums and building new multi-purpose gyms, etc., etc., etc. So I think the nature of the relationship has been around infrastructure needs, some loan, some grant, about 40% of the loan portfolio that Samoa has is to Chinese uh, companies. And what, what about the Chinese community? I gather there's quite an old... Yes, there is. There is a, an old Chinese community there. So under the um, both under the German period and during the New Zealand mandate, there were various waves of Chinese migrants that were brought in um, as labourers, particularly sort of in the like German. Indi- Indians in Fiji. Yes, yeah, a little yeah. bit like that. Uh, but at one stage, they stopped the Germans uh, forbade intermarriage, and so the whole immigration of labour labourers was halted. I think that happened under the the New Zealand period as well. So there've been a couple of periods where, uh, and it's really interesting. The old Chinese are very well established. They're not they're seen as Samoan. You know, they they might have a Aching or a Aliki, the big sort of big business uh, big business in Samoa. Most of them are Chinese, old Chinese. And, but they've been there for you know 120 years or whatever more, um, and then there's a sort of a new newer wave of Chinese sort of more involved in um, I suppose small scale business, which uh, you know has. It hasn't been necessarily easy sailing. I think the um, some of the old Chinese are not, you know, they see that as a bit threatening to their own interests too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it hasn't created at this stage um, significant social tension. So I think that that's being managed quite well so far. Rob, this is obviously a big issue in the Solomon Islands at the moment as the country um, tries to decide whether to switch from recognition of Taiwan to Beijing. Could you take us through the issues involved and has Australia expressed a view on this? Thanks, Alan. This question is never far from the thoughts of politicians in Solomon Islands. When they talk to me about it, they say that they go around the region and uh, they see uh, conference centres or um, airports or other 
items of infrastructure that, that are impressive to them and which have been delivered by China. And that attracts them. I remind them that they have a line in their budget called the National Transport Fund, which is for infrastructure, which is chronically underspent. Yeah, indeed, it has a balance of about $250 million Solomon dollars, uh, which is unspent now over the past couple of years. That could be used for achieving some of the goals uh, that they have in infrastructure. The blockages are not financial as much as uh, internal around land and, uh, and, and bureaucracy. The Taiwanese a long-term presence there. Solomon Islands has not uh, flipped at any stage. I think they've recognised uh, Taiwan since the uh, very early uh, 1980s. And Taiwan has well-regarded programs uh, in um, agriculture in particular. But it, it's a red-hot issue at the moment. Uh, there are voices on both sides. Australia's position is that this is a sovereign decision for Solomon Islands and uh, we have said the same thing privately. We think that it's important to demonstrate our reliability and respect uh, as, a, as a partner of Solomon Islands and uh, we need to show them uh, that by respecting uh, what uh, decision uh, they make. Of course, we will be available to offer advice uh, if they uh, seek it. And we will always be there, though, the day after whatever decision uh, they make because our long-term interests dictate that. Turning to a, to a different uh, subject, Australia's climate change policy came in for a fair bit of stick at the Pacific Islands Forum recently. Now, obviously... Your two jobs are to convey as clearly and persuasively as you can the views of the Australian government on this matter, so I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. But the uh, Forum's 2018 BOE Declaration on Regional Security, and that's sort of interesting because it's the principal declaratory statement on the issue of security by all the Forum members, uh, begins with a declaration that climate change is the single greatest threat to the livelihoods, security and well-being of the people of the Pacific. Now, neither of you, as we heard, is accredited to one of the most vulnerable atoll states like Kiribati or, or Tuvalu. It's hard to see Solomon Islands being submerged soon by a sea level rise. But I am interested in how the two countries you live in think about the environment uh, and climate more generally. Is it a genuinely live issue in the local political debate? It's, uh, it's true. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not the top issue in Solomon Islands because the vulnerability isn't as acute as is in uh, some of those uh, atoll states. It's, uh, it's quite mountainous, uh, as you know. But when people talk to me about it, they certainly are in no doubt about the uh, about the science. It's uncontested across the, the political spectrum there. Moreover, there are a couple of places which are very low-lying. Uh, Taro, which is the capital of the province of Choiseul, uh, is very low-lying and uh, it's a town that uh, may have to be relocated uh, in the coming uh, decade or so. Are based on consensus of uh, sea level uh, rises. The other thing is the 
increasing unpredictability of uh, seasonal rains, which is noticeable to uh, people who are reliant on uh, on certain crops. So there are other issues uh, rise higher to the uh, surface uh, when you talk to uh, leadership in Solomon Islands, but it's uh, it's not far from the top. I think in Samoa it, it is very much top priority for a number of reasons. So Samoa's economy is highly vulnerable to the extreme weather events, which will be, you know, exacerbated by climate change. So there's a statistic, uh, you know, in Australia, 85% of the population lives within 50 kilometres of the coast. In Samoa, 80% of the population lives within one kilometre of the coast. So, you know, it does have mountains and traditionally people lived more in the mountains than they do now. But now all of the economic activity is around the coast. And for example, um, I mean, I was talking about this today with somebody, the 2012 cyclone Evan hit Samoa, left it with $210 million worth of damage, which doesn't sound like an awful lot in um, the Australian context. But when your GDP is only $900 million, uh, it was about 30% of uh, Samoa's GDP. And there have been cyclones since then as well. So, you know, every November when the cyclone season starts, people uh, have it as front of mind is about preparing for cyclones. Is one going to hit this year? You know, they, they were lucky to escape from Cyclone Gita that went on and unfortunately damaged Tonga much, much worse than it did in Samoa, but it did hit in Samoa too. Uh, and people are very conscious that these things are going to happen more and more regularly. In terms of its own debt um, situation, Samoa is um, classified as highly uh, at risk of high de- debt distress primarily because it's got so much economic activity on the coast. And so it is a real issue for for Samoa. That's the first thing. Second thing is that politically, uh, Samoa has played a really um, prominent role on the regional and global stage in terms of promoting uh, the the narrative around the Blue Pacific. Um, So Tula Epa was instrumental in... Uh, being part of drafting that narrative, which was um, from about two years ago, I think. And so it's, uh, it is something that, uh, you know, it, it helps place them on the world stage, it, um, but that means it's also a political issue as well as being a live sort of existential issue. Let's talk about how you do your jobs. Uh, one of the distinctive things about being an Australian head of mission in the South Pacific, I imagine, is that you have a much more prominent place in the local community than your counterparts in Australian posts in most areas of, say, Europe or Latin America. So I'm interested in how much of your job involves dealing with the local government and how much involves projecting Australia into the local community. Uh, Rod, why don't you start? Well, you're right, Alan. It's it's both of those things. I I think of it as uh, broadcasting and and narrowcasting and uh, keeping our capital uh, healthy uh, so that we can uh, dip into it from from time to time. Our access is uh, superb in Solomon Islands. You have to work at that, of course. You have to make sure you don't squander it on on things that uh, matter less. And we're also very prominent. Um, there's Rarely a day where the one one or both of the our local newspapers doesn't have something about an activity Australia is uh, leading a policy that we're uh, in, engaging on. So uh, my my normal day involves at least a couple of meetings with ministers or or senior officials to prosecute specific policy initiatives from Canberra, and there's the age old 
challenge of making time for that other work, that second half of the work that you described, Alan, of of getting out uh, into communities, talking to Solomon Islanders, hearing from them what they think uh, of Australia, about uh, our role in the country, about the things uh, that we are, we're trying to achieve there. When I travel into Solomon Islands communities, there is, there's great warmth for uh, Australia, and I say that uh, quite sincerely. It's very touching. People will tell stories about how they weren't able to access uh, health care for five years until Ramsey uh, came in or the local school uh, closed. And it was only when Ramsey came in that uh, the children were, were able to be uh, educated. So there's immense goodwill for Australia. We don't take that for granted, uh, though. We have a good, warm and, and natural relationship with Solomon Islanders. They're very uh, frank people. One of my favourite anecdotes was uh, from a small village in the highlands of of Guadalcanal where I met a lady who took her uh, vegetables down to the Honiara market uh, every week and uh, I said well that's lovely I'm I'm glad you go down there you might see me at the market Uh, from time to time I go there on Saturdays with my with my family and she looked a little bit sceptical and said well That'd be nice, but uh, I have trouble telling you white people apart. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I can ask about uh, bilateral issues that go, if you like, in the other direction, and this brings us back to the seasonal worker program, Sarah, and the Pacific Labor Scheme. You know, both of these are obviously very important to Samoa and very successful, but are also, like any bilateral issues, there are going to be from time to time issues that come up that need to be discussed and worked through. And I imagine it's something that your counterpart, the Samoan head of mission in Canberra, works on a lot. Can you talk us through your role um, you know, from, from Samoa in contributing to these issues? Sure. So, yes, I mean, the Labor Scheme, uh, it's probably early days to call it really successful, but it certainly got off to a very successful start. Um, and I think we've got, as we speak, about 36 Samoans who are in Australia under the Pacific Labor Scheme. So that's a really good basis. The thing I think that uh, we've really actively worked hard to do is help the Samoan government um, in terms of facilitating the flow of people. They've they've got a labour sending unit in their Ministry of Commerce, Industry and Labour, which is a very small team, you know, and that's what we, I guess the struggle across government is that you've got very few people. uh, They're very highly capable, but there's just not enough people. And so we've helped them talk through how we can kind of make this work uh, get it up and running really and working smoothly but from from their part um, they've also recognized that countries that have been really successful uh, in the seasonal workers program and that's uh, Vanuatu and Tonga have had liaison officers on the ground in Australia and so they've act- actively just recently recruited and put in place um, a liaison officer and that seems to be working really well mm. as well so that person uh, goes out and does pastoral care deals with a lot of the issues and there are there are issues you know that and, and I think one of the things that the Samoan government is very conscious of is that it wants to avoid any reputational issues it's very worried about people overstaying their visas and and things like that and and, and that just actually hasn't happened um, to date there have been unfortunate issues with people not doing the right thing occasionally mm. 
uh, getting into trouble, staying out late on the weekends and not going back to work on the Mondays, things like that. <laughs> um, and they're very keen to avoid all of that. And so are we, obviously. So I think it's really important. And they've been doing a really good job with this liaison officer to, to make sure that we smooth the way. I mean, there's going to be hiccups along the way. You're dealing with people. But, you know, I think everyone's really keen to make this a success. Great. Uh, a quick question about digital diplomacy. Uh, Rod, you are on Twitter, personally I see, and of course the High Commission has a Facebook page. Well, Sarah, I believe you've just got the, em- the Embassies or the High Commission's Facebook page. How do you each decide upon your social media strategy and how does it affect your job overall? Rod? Our biggest reach is really through Facebook. Uh, Facebook is the preferred social media uh, platform and we've got you know, deep penetration with that. Uh, we've got about, I think it's approaching 20,000 uh, followers or, or likes, uh, which in a, a smallish country of uh, 650,000 is, is amazing. So uh, the most sophisticated effort and really is through Facebook. And I tinker with Twitter. It, there aren't many uh, followers. Uh, I've got only about 1,000 uh, followers, which is quite modest in, in the among uh, DFAT, uh, heads of mission, Really, on so on Facebook, we we have a team up there that attempts to do the normal uh, low hanging fruit, such as uh, giving prominence to events. You know, if I'm opening a an aid project or or uh, uh, the new Gizo market, uh, for example, I think what we're trying to get better or, or at or speaking though, in a podcast, uh, right? Correct. <laughs> yes, no doubt we'll we'll we'll. Do that. <laughs> What we need to get better at, though, is telling uh, compelling stories uh, over time about uh, the impact of our, our aid work. Uh, that takes uh, much more planning and effort than uh, showing up with a camera and uh, and sending out a, a tweet. So the, the planning is really around Facebook. Twitter is much more uh, opportunistic, and I'm glad that so many of my fellow heads of mission follow me. <laughs> I don't yet, but I should. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we we sort of did a bit of analysis. Twitter's not much uh, used in Samoa, um, uh, so we, we, uh, but everybody uses Facebook. So that's why we're on Facebook too. Um, I'm about to go live with an Instagram and we'll just sort of see how that goes. Um, I'm not an Insta person, but anyway, I'm going to give it a go. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. But the keys for us has been really we've had a we've put in place a new communications and PD sort of strategy. Uh, I think we've way past the days of boring shots of heads of mission going and standing, shaking hands with people. You know, nobody's interested in that. Well, we still do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have the we have the group photos. You know, those are those are unavoidable. You can uh, if it even not in a group photo, you weren't there and it mm. didn't happen. Mm. But um, I think again, we also want to look at what well, we are. We're focusing on the people, the stories, the outcomes, and and very much focused on the the connections. So anytime. You know, we've had sort of people from with Samoan heritage come over who are doing things in the creative arts or musicians. We've we've done quite a bit with them and posted mm-hmm. stuff on Facebook, and they they're always the ones that get the most likes. Yeah, by far the biggest impact we've had was uh, an amazing story of uh, uh, during the uh, election, the uh, ADF, the Australian Defence Forces, provided uh, you know great logistical support, and we had up there about two hundred or three hundred. Uh, ADF members, and one of them 
had Solomon Islands heritage and uh, she went over to see her grandmother who still lived on Malaita and she hadn't seen her in a couple of decades and there was a tearful uh, reunion and it, w- it was beautiful, this uh, Australian soldier in an Australian uniform seeing her Solomon Islands uh, grandmother. We've had a couple like that too on the most recent ship visits. We've had some Samoans, um, Samoan uh, Australians on those ships and mm-hmm. it's just incredible mm-hmm. and especially and they haven't been, uh, I went to um, a rugby, uh, rugby nines women's game so there was an Australian team that came over from Queensland uh, and there were several um, Samoan uh, women on that team who'd never been to Samoa before. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the game, they were all in their huddle. They won the competition, which was exciting enough in itself, but they, they were in the huddle kind of, you know, very emotional about it all. And some of the, the a couple of the women were just saying, I can't believe, you know, we've been on this journey together and I'm, I'm Samoan, but I never felt like I was. And, and now I'm un- exploring and understanding my heritage and being mm-hmm. back with, with all of these women. And uh, so it's just those fantastic stories to talk about, you know, which highlight the sort of people-to-people connections, which are so important. Yeah. As uh, Darren and I keep saying, these are challenging times for Australian uh, foreign policy, and it's really reassuring to know that uh, out there, uh, keeping watch, uh, uh, pursuing our our interests, uh, we have such uh, great people serving Australia. So, Sarah, uh, Rod. Huge thanks for coming on the uh, podcast and uh, and for speaking to us so frankly. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Darren. Thank you very much, Alan and Darren. It's been a great pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Australia in the World podcast. We thank AAA intern James Hain for research and audio editing, XC Chong also for research, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, as well as Martin Pierce for technical support in studio. Thank you and talk to you again soon.